getting to know you. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. You are precisely my cup of tea. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Podcast Goes To, a weekly podcast where we randomly select and discuss an Oscar-nominated picture. This week, the podcast goes to 1956's The King and I. I'm Matt, joined by my co-host, Bob. Bob, are you going to be nice to me this week? I mean, I am the king, so you got to treat me with respect. Bob, I feel like I was... I, I feel like I was a little bit deceived with this movie because when people found out that we picked it, they all said how much they liked it. So I was looking forward to another great movie like we had last week with An American in Paris, and I was a little bit disappointed. You were disappointed in this movie, Matt? You know, this disappoints me. You know why? Everyone loves to hear people argue. I was super disappointed with this, too. Oh, no. We're going to agree with each other the whole time again. Damn I it. I want the conflict, man. I think for the most part, we've agreed on every movie so far. I think we both were lukewarm on Darkest Hour and... Guess of the Spider-Woman. Uh, that was our biggest, like, drama episode, I guess you can call it. Yeah, the sparks were really flying uh, in episode three. And since then, we've basically been in the 1950s. So praise the film gods that please do not give us 1950s again this week. It's it's already in the bag. We're going to be watching the Ten Commandments next week. Just, just It's not even worth like picking it anymore. Just I'll be so disappointed. <laughs> um, before we do that, do you have any... Uh, let's do our street cleanup session, uh, newly named for, in, in a dedication to our friend Chico. It's only street cleanup when we talk about uh, seventh heaven though <laughs> now it's uh <laughs> what happened in the last movie I'm, I'm i'm already i'm already focused on this movie what movie did we do last week american in paris bob's, bob's week to week paint cleanup <laughs> god that's bad that was really bad yeah it, uh, who's editing this this week can you cut that out matt <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah for sure man for sure i got you do you have anything from last week i mean we're always perfect at everything we do so i don't think we missed anything I completely agree, except for these four things that I wrote down. <laughs> so I was pronouncing one of the main character names wrong the entire time. His name is not Henry Borel. It's Henri. Oh, that's just French for Henry, though. I know, but I felt really dumb about it. And you're still getting it wrong. It's Henri. Uh, okay, the next thing is we didn't ever completely cover what this movie was nominated for. So speed rounding this, it was nominated best for Best Picture. picture. <laughs> Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography Color, Best Art Direction Color, Best Costume Design Color, Best Music Scoring, all of which it won, and then it was nominated but did not win Best Film Editing and Best Director. And I did write as a little side note, our good friend Edith Head from the Roman Holiday episode, she won for Black and White this year for A Place in the Sun, so another award to hang on the, the trophy shelf for our good friend Edith. Are you telling me that we have an Oscar-themed podcast and the only thing we didn't talk about last week was the Oscars? We, were, we lost our focus a little bit last week. Apparently. The third thing, uh, I did talk about this movie being inspired by a 1928 orchestral composition, but I did not say who it was by. It was by George Gershwin, and just wanted to give him a quick shout-out. I've got shout out. rhythm. I've got music. I've got Matt. Who could ask for anything more? Thank you, Bob. Old man and... trouble. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, we do have another musical this week, so I'm glad you're in the. I'm glad you're in the spirit here. Do you, Do you want to sing uh, all of the songs? Make a mega mix out of this uh, this musical, Matt. Ooh, mega mix! I like that. I forgot to look at where this musical was ranked in the to AFI Top 100. I'll have to do that during our first break and get back to you guys. And then really quick, the last thing, I had a bunch of fun facts that I was like, oh, I'm totally going to get these, I'm totally going to fit these in here, and I totally did not. So here's a couple of them. Uh, Jerry Mulligan, Fred Astaire was originally considered for the role before it went to Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire. Sorry, that's from a Madonna song. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> from Vogue. 
1951, when this movie was nominated for an Oscar, the Oscars were still not televised. You still had to listen to them on the radio. This movie was censored in several countries because of the risque fountain scene in the 17-minute ballet that was considered to be edgy. What? And the movie was banned completely in French Indochina. And finally, one thing that I found extremely interesting and couldn't wait to tell everybody about, and then you prompted me perfectly by saying, wow, these actors are so athletic, and then I blew it and didn't say it, was that Leslie Caron, uh, who was handpicked by Gene Kelly, by the way, a little trend going on of actresses being handpicked by the male actors, she suffered from malnutrition during World War II and had natural anemia. So often she'd be so exhausted from the dance numbers that she'd have to take days off between shooting. Found that really interesting, and thought I wanted, thought I should share it with you guys. Little, little malnutrition. Just another list of horrible things going wrong on set. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm sitting here eating taquitos and making this podcast. Dude, you had taquitos for dinner too. Uh, among other things, yeah. Oh, I, I had, I had taquitos just before from Costco. Meeting up with you? No, from Trader Joe's. Oh, see, you're a rich man. You rich man, I'm poor. <laughs> that leads us perfectly into. The King and I. Presented you in Cinemascope 55, which looked awesome. I <laughs> I love me some cin- Cinemascope. Did you see it in cin- Did you see it in 55? That's what it said uh, in the on the screen when I watched it. Cinemascope 55. So, cuz I know it was shot in Cinemascope 55, but I know I also know it was one of only two movies that was ever shot in 55 and they ended up projecting it in 35 anyway. So, it was like it didn't even make a difference. Yeah, 55 is kind of an odd choice. <laughs> Mathematically, it doesn't happen very often. And Carousel was the other one, by the way. Uh but yeah, that was a total bomb. Well, we can talk a little bit about Cinemascope later if you want while we when we bring up Technicolor which we promised to talk about this week. Very exciting podcast that we have planned for you guys. And then I'll take you through step-by-step process of how I clean my feet. We're not going to do that, I promise. So, Bob, so you were disappointed in this movie. What about it disappointed you before we get into the specifics? It was boring. I didn't care about anyone. I just, like, I'm watching this movie, eating taquitos. No, I didn't. I would never eat taquitos two nights in a row. Just throwing that out there. I was eating matzah with cream cheese on it because... My roommate is Jewish, and we had a lot of leftover for Passover. So I, it was just, like, boring. And after watching these amazing dance numbers in the musical last week, American in Paris, and then you get a musical this week, and they're practically not dancing in any of the in any of the numbers except for that crazy Uncle Thomas's little house thing. <laughs> yeah, I, was so, I, was, I felt the same way. I was really excited when I saw that there was a choreographer and that it was a musical. And I thought we might get another special treat here. Everyone talked so highly about this movie. Most of the singing was done with one actor in, framed in the middle third of the screen, staring directly into the camera and just singing the whole song with nothing going on around them. And usually it was like a medium close shot. So you couldn't even really see the background and it, yeah, it, it did not, absolutely nothing for me. And the songs weren't even that thrilling. There's getting to know you was pretty good, but otherwise there's nothing memorable. I don't remember any of the other songs. Yeah. I briefly remember the beginning one where she's basically singing to her son about like pretending to be brave makes you brave (laughs) oh it was like if you whistle people will think that you're brave if you whistle i think that was it but i would have done that part but i still don't know how to whistle (laughs) really or snap my fingers basically i'm a pathetic human being how do you not know how to snap your fingers? You just snap them. My ex always used to like ridicule me for those two things. She's like, you'll never be a real man. Tell you, snap your fingers and whistle like little John. Snap your fingers. Do you snap? I feel like your relationship existed in 1927. <laughs> Were you a street sweeper? It, it felt it felt like 1927. Everything was black and white. I was poor, <laughs> down on my luck. <laughs> I was in some weird, strange land called Peacedale, but let's not go there. <laughs> so the King and I is uh, the true story of Anna, a school teacher who travels to Siam to teach the many children of the nation's king, King Mongkut. And just a heads up, I will butcher names for the entirety of the show, every episode, every single week. 
That's exactly why he got me as the co-host of this show is because Bob can't get that wrong. Uh, so their ideals quickly clash as Anna refuses to live in the royal palace. She wants her own place, and she barges into the king's chamber before they've even met, immediately starts making demands. The king obviously refuses, and um, she threatens to leave, but then meets his kids, meets his wives, and settles into many months of teaching in the royal palace. That's the setup for this movie. It's based on a true story, and I read up a little bit about the true story behind it, I was kind of shocked to find that a lot of the ideas presented in the movie were sort of close to reality because the execution of the movie was not close to reality whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> especially when you get into musicals. <laughs> so I guess it's I guess it's important to just come right out the bat and talk about the white elephant in the room, which is that... The Siamese were played by white people. <laughs> was that um, jarring to you at all, or did it just seem normal and you, it didn't really affect your viewing experience? I mean, I, I was expecting it. It's a 1950s film. The kids, though, the kids, they looked Siamese-ish. Yeah, I think the kids, I think the kids were of some sort of Asian descent. But for the most part, the king himself was played by um, Yul Brenner, who was... He's I guess Russian, he right? He claimed that he had Mongolian blood, but he was Russian and he didn't look he didn't look Thai. In but at any the way. time, he was the Hollywood's. OK, you're not American. You're a Russian dude. So play everyone that's not <laughs> like he was Ramses and, <laughs> and the Ten Commandments. <laughs> like I feel like he just plays whoever the foreign dude is in the movie. That's his <laughs> that's his role. Yeah. So he was the closest we came to some sort of foreigner in this foreign land. And it's so funny that when they arrive, they're so scared of these people, but they all look American. So this is just this white girl is just trembling in fear of these savages. And there are, the the film begins on the boat, on the boat on the way uh, to Siam. Did you notice that the boat never rocks or like moves at all <laughs> while they're on it? It's just completely still. That was one of the things that. I found to be a little bit distasteful is that it didn't separate itself very far from the Broadway play, which I admittedly haven't seen, but I felt like I was just watching a recorded version of the play. That's a good point. I didn't think of that. Yeah, the, the, there's not a lot of, of exotic camera movement and, the, you know, the sets are pretty straightforward. Apparently they have 40 sets built for this, but I can only recall five or six throughout the course of the film. I know that 40? there was... Yeah, that's what, that's what they said. 40 sets. Everything takes place in those like same two rooms, though. There, there was one pretty cool scene, which when she is walking to the palace where there are elephants and all that, that that seemed like that was an expensive shot. Yeah. Otherwise, it yeah. just seemed like they were in the it seemed like they were in the schoolroom for most of. In fact, I even think it even looked at one point that they redressed the schoolroom for several other rooms. Yeah, because they're living in a palace, but you saw the same like two rooms the whole time. And I remember one point. Uh, the king is complaining that he can't think because all the kids are singing. It was like, you live in a damn palace. There's not enough space where you like can always hear your kids in school the entire time. Yeah, so the king was an interesting character. So he played this progressive uh, Siamese king who really wanted to adapt to Western culture and adopt a lot of their beliefs and traditions, but he just couldn't bring himself to do it. So he is willing to admit that the earth is round, but he still had concubines and believed in slavery and all this stuff. So I thought his character was really interesting. Yeah, I love how some of the things they brought up, like the flat earth argument <laughs> is like a dialogue scene between him and his son. <laughs> it's still prevalent today. <laughs> Only it's on Facebook now instead of on you know but that's because that's because in buddhism buddhist buddhist scripture described the earth as being flat so it was a radical idea because it it involved them having to defy what their religious texts was telling them oh interesting so you studied buddhism for this podcast i did i did the the buddhist scripture states that a path between two mountain ranges through which the stars planets moon and sun pass is the way in which the the 
the earth and it, the universe is described. Uh, but it was in the 19th century that they began treating the Buddhist text as um, something that should be taken literally only when it came to spiritual truths. So they were starting to move into an era of scientific revelation. And that's where we sort of meet the king. And he's getting there. In fact, that's the reason why he wanted Anna there, was to teach the kids scientific knowledge. <laughs> and he let us know throughout the whole movie, because I think the only two words he said were science, scientific, and a third word maybe, etc. 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 Oh, man. Yeah, he, he kept talking about science this, science that. But she came to teach English. That's what I found weird. Oh, was she? I thought she was just there to tutor them in all matters. Oh, okay. Maybe I missed, I misinterpreted that. Because everyone spoke pretty good English. I don't know if you noticed this. <laughs> Other than having really racist, stereotypical Chinese accents, and they're not even Chinese, they're Siamese, uh, it didn't seem like they had any trouble with the language barrier. Yeah, now that I think about it. <laughs> I mean, there was the scene in the garden where the two native Siamese speaking individuals were speaking English and singing in English to each other. This is a true story and that's how it happened. Maybe. So what did you think of what did you think of the king's character? He had that classic king, you know, like I'm the greatest, everyone bow down to me nonsense, but I give him props, I guess, for trying to incorporate science and teach everyone English and kind of get a little progressive on on his uh, society. <laughs> Get all progressive on their ass. Yeah, he was badass. He wanted to send elephants to the U.S. so Abe Lincoln could win the slavery war. Oh, yeah, I like that. It was weird that he was in support of Abraham Lincoln's slavery, war against slavery, but yet he held slaves. Yeah, but that's different. Yeah, they're not my slaves that are getting freed. Oh, no, I was going to say, I liked his character more than I liked Anna. Anna was very ignorant. <laughs> Movies that lose me, like this one, who who is like the character I'm supposed to follow in this film? Is it him? Is it her? He was slightly more likable than her in my opinion, but I didn't like him enough where I was where I cared about what he did and what his challenges were in the film. I just wasn't attached to anyone in the film where I like cared where it went. I was a little bit attached to him because I could see where he was trying to escape his own culture's archaic beliefs and traditions, whereas Anna had a sort of, I don't know, British imperialist vibe to her. Like she, her, the, she didn't care at all that she was on someone else's territory abiding by someone else's rules she just felt like her way was the right way and everything else was savage and she did let everybody know and there was no sense of respect or anything and that does not change at any point from beginning to end yeah i'm with you on that and it was funny too because in the very beginning she meets like the basically the bottom bitch <laughs> the like what she call herself the head wife and she spoke English, but she started speaking English by, like, reciting Bible verses. She's like, oh, missionaries taught you English. Kind of like, oh, now I'm the real teacher. I'm not going to be condescending and just tell you to change everything and be like me, like missionaries. And then she kind of she kind of held a similar standard. <laughs> yeah, she did. She absolutely did. I, I find it hard to believe. She seemed a little bit shocked that there were so many wives. You would think that she would have known that and a little bit more about what these people were like before she got there. He had a lot of wives and a lot of kids. <laughs> yeah, in fact, in real life, he had 82 children and 32 wives or concubines. So I even think they toned it down a little bit so that they could fit everybody in that one room. So that was the thing, though. He keeps referencing that he has, like, hundreds of kids or, like, over 100 kids. And he's like, oh, start with these 30 and then we'll move on to them. But then even, spoiler, at the end when he's, like, on his deathbed, the same 30 kids are there, but the other ones, I guess, aren't good enough to be around him. And out of all those kids, he has only one son. Wait, they were all daughters? I think so. I think they were just small. I thought they were all girls. What? I, if that's the case, I miss that. That's what I thought, but maybe I'm just totally... I mean, he was definitely the attention. eldest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems like he zoned out throughout several portions of this movie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wasn't very interested in this film. I wonder, as an audience back then, going back to our conversation from last week about talking about how everything sort of changes over time, how we perceive things, 
Anna, if Anna was seen as sort of a liberal, brave female protagonist. Yeah, I didn't really get her, like, her motives. Like, why she was going there to help out and teach them English and science and whatever. Like, it didn't make sense to me. It's like, oh, I'm lonely because my husband died, so I guess I'll go here because at least I'll get a house. And then she doesn't get her house, and that's, like, the end of it for her. It's like she came all this way on, like, these boats. (laughs) It's like, you're not giving me a house? I had to live in a palace? This is bullshit. She certainly, her personality certainly doesn't fit the type of person who would be willing to do this to her and her son, <laughs> like leave her cushy life in Britain to go to what she would consider to be a shithole. It actually wasn't, but. Well, choose your words carefully, Mr. Trump. So <laughs> on that note, Matt, it's time to pick our decade. And if you pick a 1950s movie again, <laughs> I'm coming for you. <laughs> There's just there's just no way that this could possibly happen, right? I mean, if we consider everything from the 70s to the present to be sort of modern, that's still almost 50 years worth of movies, and yet we've been stuck in pre-1957 for a month. <laughs> Next week, the podcast goes to... Come on! Double O, baby, the 2000s! Woo! Barbecue chicken! <laughs> this Let's is... Go! This is extremely, extremely exciting news. Breaking news, everybody. We're back in the 21st century next week. Very exciting. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, my God. Get us out of this 50s slump. All right. Well, we will take a quick break and we will come right back with more here on the podcast goes to... Whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid. While shivering in my shoes, I strike a careless pose and whistle a happy tune and no one ever knows I'm afraid. The result of this deception is very strange to tell. For when I fool the people I fear, I fool myself as well. I whistle a happy tune, and every single time, the happiness in the tune convinces me that I'm not afraid. And we are back here on the podcast goes to talking about 1956's The King and I. So, Bob, what are you watching? So last week I went to the movie theater, dust off my movie pass, which I haven't used in a while. Uh, We saw Ready Player One. You see this movie? No, I've read the book and I really enjoyed the books and I've heard mixed reviews, either love or hate for the movie. So which one is it? I don't read books, so I didn't read the book, but... And I had super low expectations going into this. And with those low expectations, I thought it was okay. I, 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 it, was a, it was a fun night out. Did it capture that Spielberg charm? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say it had a little of that Spielberg charm. And it was, uh, it was entertaining. No Fortnite in there. So pretty bummed about that. But Didn't make the cut, huh? Didn't make the cut. I know a uh, guy we talk about briefly every week, Keith Brown, will probably love this film because it was very 80s. Yeah, Keith is an enigma. He enjoyed The King and I, and I just don't know. I just don't know how. Yeah, I'm not sure. So what are you what are you watching, Matt? A little bit of a segue into Oscar talk, but I am trying desperately to catch up on Westworld. Ooh. Have you have you seen it? I love Westworld. Okay. Oh. Yeah, it is awesome. Oh so I still have three episodes left in the first season. But uh, I'm going to give it all away to you at the time. You better not at the time of this <laughs> release. The, so it's premiered now by the time you're listening to this. And uh, wow. I'm still. Yeah. So I'm hoping to oh be caught up God. by the second episode. Uh, man, I am really, really into it. It took about half the season. Admittedly, I really liked the concept, but I couldn't really get into the characters and the pacing was a little slow. But then Similar to Game of Thrones and a lot of other HBO shows, the more you watch it, the more you can't stop watching it. I mean, I was hooked instantly on that one. Those two episodes were like the best two episodes of television I've ever watched. I was super into it. 
Yeah. I mean, I was like I said, I was into the concept. If, if the concept is basically that these the, in the future, we, there's this robot park that people can pay an exorbitant amount of money to go to. And it basically these androids are completely lifelike. You can't tell the difference. And, it, uh, you know, things go awry, similar to like a Jurassic Park, but with robots, with artificial intelligence. It is very well acted. The special effects are top notch. It just it, it the scale of it is so big that you can't even fathom that you're watching a TV show. I mean, it feels like a movie every single episode. Oh my god, love me some Thandie Newton. Yeah, in the last couple episodes, there have there's been a twist at the end of each episode that I did not see coming, and it's getting increasingly difficult for me to not expect a twist and. I didn't expect either of these, and it didn't feel like a twist for the sake of a twist, which is one of the things that Bob and I hate about certain shows like Jessica Jones Season 2 and Star Trek Discovery Season 1. Come on, baby! Let's do the twist! I've been singing a lot in this episode. <laughs> I've been meaning to say something about that, but I just thought I'd let it go. Uh, we can. I'll tell you what, Kendrick Lamar won the Pulitzer, so... That was a great, great little rendition you did last week of Kendrick. Yeah, that's why he won the Pulitzer, by the way. Maybe uh, next week for that. We had a fan that talked about how she loved Marshall Mathers. Maybe they'll do a little Eminem action uh, next week on the show. Ooh, keep them keep listening. Keep them coming back for more. Or maybe I won't. Tune in. <laughs> the reason why I said that Westworld was a good transition into our Oscar talk is because Yul Brenner played the, um, the gunslinger in the original movie Westworld by Michael Crichton, on which the TV show is based. Yeah, I looked that up and I, was, I wasn't expecting that at all. It was so cool. Apparently the movie's not very good. But it was probably a really good book. Michael, Michael Crichton's notorious for that. And actually, he also wrote Jurassic Park. So it's no wonder that this is Jurassic Park with AI. <laughs> Basically. And the great train escape. I don't know. It's sitting in my room. I still haven't read it because I don't read books. Yeah, my, my microphone is sitting on a stack of two books right now. <laughs> One of them is called The Film Book. Never even opened it. <laughs> well, that explains a lot. And... The New York Times bestseller, Stephen Hawking, The Universe in a Nutshell. I'm about two pages deep, and I bought it years ago. Okay. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, Bob. Reading is really healthy for you. I mean, I read scripts. Does that count? When they send them to me, they're like, oh, shoot this movie. Okay. Speaking of which, I have a script that I put off all day. Oops. So uh... <laughs> I just finished reading a good book. Yeah. It was called it was called At the Existentialist Cafe and it was all about these existentialists in the in the 20th century. It takes place a lot of it they, a lot of them are French and it takes place during World War II. It's a true story. And uh, there's one story about how this woman would would get people out of Germany into safe territory and her house was literally on the border. So what she would do is invite people over for dinner, and then when they were done eating, they would just leave through the back door and be in another country, and that's how they escaped. Well, that, isn't that convenient? I'm not sure if she ever got caught. It was only like a one-paragraph story, and I feel like something like that deserves a whole movie, but um, instead we're stuck with the true story of the King of Siam, and Yul Brenner's performance as the king earned him the best actor win. At the 1956 Oscars, what are your thoughts on that? I thought he was really good in this movie. I I, I, I was digging his performance. I I wasn't huge on the character, but I'll, I'll attribute that to the writing. I liked him. I don't think that he portrayed the real life person accurately. I mean, it's hard to know, but I just have a hard time thinking that he was that goofy. So... <laughs> In, in modern times, I don't think that he would have won, but in 1956, he's a worthy winner, I guess. He just brought so much energy to the screen, you know? Goes back to, like, the theater thing you were talking about. He was just... Is it... Did he, did he perform on Broadway as well? Oh, I don't know. What are you looking at me for? Uh, you're the guy who's supposed to know this stuff. I just make jokes here and there. So they also won Best Art Direction in color best costume 
in color. Sound recording in color. Is that a new one for us? I feel like sound recording wasn't a thing, a category in the, the other ones we just did. Yeah, I think this is a newer one. And best music scoring. And for best costume, our good friend Irene Sheriff, who just won the Oscar last week for An American in Paris. Two Oscars in two weeks? Yeah, she's go back to back. <laughs> See, you got it. You got it. You're in the music scene now. So she would also win for uh, West Side Story and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But our good friend Irene, I feel like she didn't have as much of a tall task this year. Let's talk about how ridiculous the, the dresses were in the 1800s, where at one point she's walking down the hallway and her dress takes up the entire hallway. And when, uh, the scene where uh, the king is like, oh, you you can't have your head over me. I'm the king. And he like lays on the floor and she's just laying in the dress. <laughs> it's just dress all around her. And when she first arrives, the, the other, the women there are like, looking at her all weird and she's like what's going on and they're like they're wondering if you're the same shape underneath <laughs> they think she's wearing the puffy dress because that's her, the shape of her body that was that was really good not a bad guess it shows how ridiculous those dresses are though and how like what they were wearing in the quote-unquote less civilized area made way more sense <laughs> yeah she must have been really hot I mean, she's really hot. Our good friend, Deborah Kerr. So what else What else was it nominated for? So I mentioned the winners. So it was also nominated for Best Actress, Deborah Kerr, Best Director, Walter Lang, and Best Cinematography Color, Leon Shamwow. That's totally his last name. Shamroy. It says here on our Google Doc, Shamwow. No, I, I can hear you typing and changing the document. <laughs> I have it printed out right here, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you next time, Matt. So these Oscars were notable because it was the first year that Best Foreign Language Film was an actual category. It had been winning honorary awards in years prior, but this be it became an official category this year. And Federico Fellini won the this one and next year. He won the first two Oscars for this category. Good old Fellini. Uh, I saw a few of those in film school with you, We right? watched one together. Yeah. Which one was Which that? Which one was it? Amacord or something like that? That was the one. Yeah. yeah. I fell asleep. Oh, I liked it. Yeah. I, I was, well, I fell asleep because everything you like, I think, is crap. <laughs> it was also the first year that all five Best Picture nominees were in color. So here we were worried that we were going to get a black and white picture, and none of them were in black and white. It also was a year that brings back our good friend from Roman Holiday, Dalton Trumbo. He won another award given to his pseudonym for The Brave One. Best original story. <laughs> that guy's a champ. <laughs> he just, he just, it doesn't matter if blacklist, no blacklist, communist, not communist. I write and I write good. I think I'm on drugs. <laughs> someone someone put something in my drink. Do you think someone maybe slipped something in your taquitos? Maybe Costco taquitos weren't the best choice. Costco would never do that to me. Dude, we went to, we went there and we shopped and we had lunch. And you can get like a foot-long hot dog for $1.50 and it comes with a soda that you can refill. You can put as many onions as you want in this hot dog, by the way. That's incredible. I, I used to... I never had at Costco experience we used to go to Sam's Club and there was also BJ's and they both had badass dogs oh maybe it's just a thing for all these wholesale clubs yeah I think they all have like really long hot dogs that you could just put mustard and onions and all that shit shop on shop all day and then you long dog and afterwards yeah are you, a, are you a toasted bun guy I love toasting my buns when I can so in the film <laughs> My favorite oh, so character. You're really not gonna tell me if you like toasting your hot dog buns. No. Tune in next week. Uh, so, any anything else to add about the Academy Awards? I wanna. I have a few other things to jump back into the film and talk about. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Just two more things. Uh, the Searchers was considered one of uh, the biggest snubs of all time at the Oscars. Did not get nominated for a single not a single award, but is uh, widely considered one of the better movies in cinema over the last hundred or so years and uh james dean 
back-to-back award nominations. He won. La- he was nominated last year for Rebel Without a Cause. Nominated this year for Giant. Dead both years. So he died, uh, and he was uh, back-to-back posthumous award nominations. That's pretty baller. <laughs> How do he do that? How do he act in the movies if he was dead? I'm guessing Giant was filmed before his death and released after a year after Rebel Without a Cause. I don't get it. Don't think too hard. So, <laughs> so let's head back to the movie. So who 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 is your favorite character in in the film? I have a least favorite character. Uh, I, my favorite character was probably the king. Okay, so my favorite character was her son. I fucking hated him. He was what a useless character. Character. <laughs> she didn't even need to have a son. I do, I just don't get this. He's in the beginning, and then. She, it seems like she cares more about these these little all the little king babies than him because he is nowhere to be found ever, and the only reason she stays is for the kids. When her her son wanted to go back home, he just stood in the corner like a little bitch. At one point, I know. At one point, he like comes to the front of the scene, and I'm like, oh, he was there the whole time. <laughs> I don't get how you like. Where was he the whole time? Where did he I go? Don't know. I know he okay so he's there in the first scene whistling and then in the second scene everyone wants to meet him but she says that he's too tired and he's asleep and then you don't really see him much until the very end yeah when she's like oh go get our things off the boat we're staying (laughs) yeah he has no there's no emotional investment in him whatsoever another interesting part of the movie is the king is reading the bible in this one scene and he's like moses He's like calling him out. He's like, Moses is uh, is a stupid because he thinks the world was created in seven days. Meanwhile, the same year, that same actor was in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I found that so hilarious. I don't know if I, like if you got that right away. No, but, I totally didn't. But Yul Brynner, he plays Ramses in Ten Commandments. He's literally like the nemesis of of Moses in that film. And he's calling out Moses in this film, which takes place in a completely different time and place. But it was the same Oscar year. (laughs) He's calling out Moses in this film, too. I thought that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Moses is officially on notice. It's almost like he was directly criticizing Charlton Heston. (laughs) And the fact that they were like criticizing creationism in 1956. It's sort of interesting that he was qu- questioning the Christian religious texts, and he was also questioning his own religious texts. He seemed like a pretty forward-thinking person, which is why it was very contradicting to see him, to see the path that he takes throughout the movie and towards the end when they give a performance of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is so weird, and he is enraged about the story of the slave escaping and when his one of his concubines escapes he's gonna he's just about to beat her and then anna says oh you're you know you haven't changed at all you're so backwards blah 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 and he's just infuriated by this whole thing it seems to it doesn't seem to make much sense considering what we know about his character and how progressive he seems to be yeah i didn't really get that part (laughs) at all but we definitely have to talk about this uncle tom's cabin play (laughs) what the fuck (laughs) it's like this movie this week and last week there's just the movie is going it's going in a certain direction and then there's just this scene that lasts forever and is like ridiculous and basically it's it almost seems like the whole movie is just about this scene even though the scene has nothing to do with the movie just like that 17 minute long dance number it was like this uncle tom's cabin which they call it was like basically this the Chinese uh rendition of the the book the harriet beecher stuff book uncle tom's cabin they call it little house of uncle thomas <laughs> <laughs> and it was the most ridiculous thing ever they're in white face they're in black face they're like jumping over shit the whole movie every song it's just singing. There's no dance numbers. We criticized this earlier. And then it just, and they saved it all for this. This was ridiculous. They were, they were like doing flips and shit. <laughs> like, and they, they put this whole show on in one week. Oh yeah. The whole point of it is they're trying to get 
the, the there's some British diplomats or something coming, and he wants to prove to them that he's not a savage. So they're going to get out the fine dining and throw the chopsticks away and get forks and knives, and there's going to be a performance, and then he's the diplomats are going to go on and tell everyone how great he is. And that's the result, is there's a performance of Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> <laughs> so outrageous but admittedly it was one of the more entertaining set pieces in the movie oh yeah it could have been the whole movie i don't know what the hell is going on but it was super exciting this so intricate play but again they talk about oh when are the diplomats coming or whoever the british people that were coming it's like one week and it's like we have one week to make all these dresses for everyone and put on a play and get the dinner and the cigars and all the things they were doing to impress them and then this like everything else was like poorly planned and like not really working and then this play happens and it's just like the most like rehearsed like choreographed like ridiculous thing ever but it was funny too you know what this play reminded me of la la land we're not talking about la la land till we get it in our episode anymore that's it no it reminded me of the book of mormon have you seen the book of mormon oh yeah yeah it kind of did a little right bit. for those of you i mean i'm Am I ruining it by saying this? Whatever. So in the, in the Book of Mormon, there's the the main character, the Mormon dude, who he's like teaching all these African people about the Mormon texts, but he himself doesn't really know them that well. So at the end, he puts on this play for like the head Mormon dude or whatever, and they do this ridiculous play about like <laughs> the Mormon church, and it has like Luke Skywalker in it, and like people like humping frogs for herpes or something like that and like aids and like it like none of it made any sense and that kind of reminded me of this where they're putting on this uncle tom's cabin play that had nothing to do with uncle tom's cabin as far as i could tell <laughs> like have you read it no you don't read i actually did read this one it was back when they forced me to read in school those are dark <laughs> times uh i i haven't so i don't i don't know but <laughs> so you were bluffing <laughs> well, no, I haven't. I haven't read it. I'm sorry, but I know that it's an insult to call someone an Uncle Tom. So I don't know what that's all about. It is, and we will get to it after we pick our movie year. Somehow, somehow, we're still gonna get a 1950. <laughs> Next week, the podcast goes to 2005. All right, what were you doing in 2005, Matt? I was probably watching movies quite honest <laughs> i'm excited for 2005 me too so we'll take a quick break when we come back we'll talk about the true story of the king of siam we'll follow up on our discussion of technicolor who knows maybe we'll get into a little bit of a whitewashing conversation here who knows what we'll have time for a lot of fun stuff that somehow we still have not gotten to it's almost like all this planning is always for nothing we'll be right back Today's episode is brought to you by Hunter. Are you looking for a guy who's considered a narc by many of his co-workers? Well then Hunter would like you to know that Mike Simmons is not the man for you. Tall? Yes. A stand-up guy? Maybe not. Mike will bring the office lunch and then leave you starving for loyalty. For guys who want to wear shorts to work without feeling self-conscious, choose Hunter and definitely not Mike. And we are back here on the podcast goes to talking about 1956's The King and I. I'm Matt, joined by Bob. And Bob, we're back. We got a sponsor. That's our third sponsor. He might have been in some sort of beef with our first sponsor, but it is a sponsor nonetheless. Is this a sponsor battle royale I see coming? Should it, should we do some sort of bidding war to see who gets the next ad? Yeah. Yeah, we got to make that cash. It's cost a lot of money watching these films. <laughs> uh, by the way, um, so if you are thinking about wanting to watch these movies before you listen, so far we have not had an issue finding them online. I go to the library. The no, pirate library. The pirate I, bay. I've never, I've never been to a library. Who am I kidding? This has been a big like reading episode, I've noticed. Yep. This episode brought to you by Reading Rainbow. <laughs> Reading Rainbow. <laughs> now you're singing. Who's the bitch now, bitch? 
<laughs> so The King and I is based on a 1951 Richard Rogers musical, which in turn is based on a 1944 novel by Margaret Landon called Anna and the King of Siam, which in turn is based on Anna's memoirs from 1870 titled The English Governess at the Siamese Court. So it's a based on a based on a based on a situation. It's like an inception little, of I'm sure there's a little telephone action along the way, if you know what I mean. <laughs> stupid yeah, game they made us play in school. Yeah, we get it. We've done this game already. We know how it works. You spread rumors and eventually the message gets changed. <laughs> I never thought that there was a moral behind the story. I always thought it was because it was funny. Well, joke's on you. Nothing's funny and we're all gonna die. <laughs> I remember there was one there was one kid in the class who he'd always be midway through the chain and he would just change the sentence completely. Oh, you were in my class, Matt? <laughs> Yeah, it's, he seems like a Bob Klein kind of character. <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought we agreed no last names on the show. <laughs> so Anna herself was born in India. She spent part of her life in Australia, Singapore, United States, and eventually died in Canada. So she seemed like a worldly individual. She'd probably be one of those people uh, in nowadays, like the join the Peace Corps. Yeah, maybe. So she served the king for six years and was regarded as being extremely difficult. So at least that portion of uh, her character was portrayed as being accurate. Yeah, he always, <laughs> in the movie, you very difficult woman, even on his deathbed. <laughs> or like that note, that the letter he wrote her at the end of the film. It was just, like, <laughs> and she starts crying after he, he writes it like, you very difficult woman. And then she's like, oh. <laughs> Well, she was a pain in the ass. Uh, so it seems like her character is a little bit more accurate than the king's. The king's character was portrayed as being even more backwards than he was in actuality. The fact of the matter is the king actually released many of his concubines uh, and allowed them to find their own husband. He banned forced marriages and he banned the selling of wives to pay off debts. So How the, the hell else are you going to pay off your debt? So the slave woman that is given to him in the beginning, which is sort of the pushes the whole story along, it it wouldn't have even been possible if they had accurately portrayed this story because she's the slave who ultimately escapes. Yeah. And then her her lover dies somehow. Yeah, he, she has a Burmese lover who is actually the one who sold her off and he ends up helping her escape, then falls in a river off screen. <laughs> like, like someone just comes in and is like. He's dead. He fell into a river. Or was that code for we just killed him because he stole you? Yeah, maybe. But the guy seemed pretty panicked. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> oh, no, he just fell into the river. Oh, God. Uh, King Monkut, whose true name, whose full name is, I'm not even going to say it. Um, <laughs> I, this name is so long. Why don't you give it a go? Frabat Samdet Fra Paramantha Maha Mankut. Farakam Klau Chow Yu Ho or just Rama the Fifth. Crazy. Yeah, that reminds me of that book. Okay, maybe I read one or two books back in the day. Uh, you were the <laughs> Humble tiki, Brag tiki, Central. Tiki Tiki Tembo. You were that one? Oh, yeah. The guy's name, that was his name, right? Yeah, it was like Tiki Tiki Tembo, No Sarembo, Cherry Berry Ruchi, Pip Berry Pembo. And, like, the moral of the story is Chinese people have short names now because this kid fell in a well and it took so long to say his name that they drowned. <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach him. <laughs> so, um... He now they're all named Yao Ming, so not, that doesn't happen again, although Yao Ming wouldn't fall into a well. <laughs> he'd, he'd be standing... He could fall into the well, but his head, yeah, his yeah. head would be outside the well. Uh, he was considered the father of science and technology, not... Not uh, Yao Ming, but... <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, Yao Ming? Science and technology? I knew he could dunk a basket. Um, so in the movie, he dies of shame, which is a weird way to go. He's That's, that's what's going to get me mad. <laughs> <laughs> He's so ashamed that he was going to beat this woman that he runs and hides for a couple weeks and then dies of, the, of that shame. It was so weird because he doesn't actually beat her. He actually stops and throws the whip away. So it's like he finally achieves the change that he'd been looking for, but he still dies of the shame. I didn't really get that. 
<laughs> I it, it was the the whole end of the movie made no sense to me. Absolutely none. It was just like he was like they were it almost like they were falling in love with each other or something. It was like, oh, "Okay, maybe it's a love story. The king and I, me and the king, getting married, running away on an elephant or something." And then he just decides not to live even though he's like in his 40s and like thin, <laughs> takes good care of himself. Has the whole kingdom at his disposal. <laughs> and he's like, I'm dying, I guess. Here's this le- letter. Because she lives in the palace but hasn't seen him for that like long-ass period of time. Just waiting for her boat to come because she's still mad at him. The whole ending made no sense to me. What the hell? She's, yeah, she's mad at him, but he didn't end up doing anything wrong. Yeah. I, I Like, yeah, explain what you thought happened at the end. I'm still, I'm still confused. Like, I... I so, so the, so the slave girl who's, I should, I should actually try and find her name. His, her name was Tuptim. <laughs> and it's funny because we were talking about a little bit about diversity. Originally, the woman who was cast in this role was going to be Dorothy Dandridge, who's an African-American woman, and she did not want to play a slave. <laughs> they were like, okay, we'll get some diversity in here. Here, you can play the slave. <laughs> and, Wow, I wonder why she didn't take that role. Yeah, so it was so she turned it down. So Tuptim escapes with her lover. She's caught, she's brought back, and he's so pissed that he's going to beat her, but Anna kind of accosts him, talks him out of it, and he's so ashamed that he throws the whip, runs away, and then basically dies a couple weeks later. So I my interpretation is that he's so ashamed of himself that he would beat her that he succumbs to this depression and dies is that your interpretation i guess that's what happened he like held his stomach when it at the moment of it (laughs) so ridiculous just so So, ridiculous he's like he's growing weak because he stopped eating because he's ashamed (laughs) like like, i don't know about you but when i'm ashamed i I whip out the big ben and jerry's thing and I, i i go to town that they have to open they have to keep costco open late just for you bob well you got to get the Ben and Jerry's elsewhere. Costco just has like a big tub of like vanilla cheese ice balls. cream. <laughs> Ooh, cheese balls. Well, I hate to break it to you, Bob, but in real life, he did not die of shame. He died of malaria. Shame, malaria. I got shots for both. <laughs> uh, so his 15-year-old son took over and did not ask Anna to return she was away on health leave when the king died and the, the prince, they kept in touch over the years, but he was like, nah, don't, don't bother coming back. You've done more than enough. But I thought it was interesting that uh, they make a big thing in the last scene about, about the bowing. All of a sudden bowing is like a big deal. It wasn't for the whole movie, but then it was at the end. And uh, well, the 15 year old son abolishes prostration, which is the act of bowing before a king. He abolishes that he abolishes slavery so he did end up bringing about the change that they sort of hint at at the end of the movie. Did he abolish slavery at the end? Uh, I think he was. I think he was sort of against slavery because isn't there a scene where he's sort of questioning it, and the and the dad's like, no, stupid, like American slaves can be free, but not these. But he kind of said the same thing. The son. I I don't know. I I didn't really catch that. Maybe it happened. Yeah. It's just kind of a weird scene. He's just like on the bed yelling at everyone. So clearly he has like plenty of energy still. <laughs> and then he's like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm going to die now. Uh, my 10 year old son can be the king. Whatevs. Oh, he doesn't want bowing. That's his first order. To... <laughs> Great. Sounds good to me. Um, now nah, everything I believed in is dead right as I'm dying. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Yeah, that was like a big thing that like her head couldn't be above his and he's on his deathbed and you, he can hear his son being like, yeah, that's stupid. And he's given the kids given like a whole speech about how you still have to respect him. And meanwhile, like the dad's dying. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't take the five seconds remaining in his dad's life to just be there. He's just already starting to give orders. Jumping back a little, there's that one like the little weird like love interest or whatever between that one British dude that comes to the party. <laughs> oh yeah. What was that? He was like hitting on her hard. And then they have that moment, that ridiculous moment where like all the, all the wives that are there, the concubines or whatever, they're all wearing those stupid puffy dresses to impress them. 
and they're like not wearing any underwear i guess they're just naked under them and they like they get scared of the british dude because he has a beard it's just like he looks like a goat ah! and then they all just scream and run away and you can like see all their their asses i guess when they run away and the the what was what was the line that he says it's like sorry about the bad impression and he's like we've not received such a good impression in such a short period of time oh yeah it's <laughs> referring like super to like creepy seeing all, the, all those girls naked it was like what the hell was that <laughs> Yeah, the British guy comes with the delegation, and I guess he must have been a love interest of Anna's in the past. But it's not fleshed out at all, because as soon as they have a moment alone together, the king kind of comes back in and is like, all right, let's get to dinner. And then they never talk again. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of it like went somewhere and then went nowhere. Yeah, I, I, I don't I know if I, I don't know. If, I mean, I guess it depends on the kind of life I have. But if I were the king of a country... I don't know if I'd want my legacy to be that I played the I was the ignorant king in a musical nineteen fifties <laughs> American musical. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's interesting so much has been like done with this true story. Like the the books and the plays and the movie about this like story that wasn't that interesting to me at all. So we talked about more, the more I used the word zeitgeist last week, which is German for spirit of the time. And last okay. week, okay, stop, stop you right there. Everyone fucking throws that word around. What the hell does it mean? What? I literally just told you it means spirit of the time in German. What does that? What does spirit of the time mean, though? It's just like the flavor of the moment, like what the what the general consensus is on something at at any given time. Okay. Sorry for snapping at you, Matt. That's that's fine. I, I think it's the appropriate word to use when we're discussing this. Last week, we were talking about sexism and feminism and the role of women in movies. This week, we're faced with something even more difficult, which go. is whitewashing in cinema. Yeah, go on. Talk about your whitewashing, you zeitgeist. <laughs> so I liked that they were so afraid of these people, but they weren't, they weren't foreign. They were just really tan. <laughs> so like scary. Them. So scary. I mean, I'm scared of a tan individual. <laughs> Let's not go there. So. Do, do you think whitewashing gets a pass in the 1950s or what? Absolutely. I, mean, I don't think it's ever acceptable, but that was just kind of what happened then. When did it not happen? Yeah, so recently we had um, Ridley Scott say that he can't mount films of you know big budget movies um, and say that his lead actor is named Muhammad so-and-so from such-and-such. Such. This is in reference to Exodus Gods and Kings, which just came out a couple of years ago. It seems like the this is a much more crucial prevailing issue than, sorry to say, but gender in film, which I'd, I'd say that we have issues there as well, but the representation seems to be skewed significantly more when it comes to ethnicity, race and ethnicity. Hot damn of a quote. Holy crap. It doesn't ruin Alien, but... <laughs> it, it, Alien ruins itself, but... <laughs> you talking about the new one, or...? <laughs> oh, don't, don't get me going on Covenant. <laughs> to me, it's been going on a lot. Like, having a few movies recently come out that were, like, were supposed to have a certain, you know, race or ethnicity character, and then they just put a white person in the lead role. <laughs> like Scar Scarlett Johansson? In um, Ghost in a Shell, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just don't get it, like... I guess, yeah, you can't promote a movie if no one knows who the actor is, but why can't there be famous Asian actors? It's, the, it's not, like, impossible of a prospect. Yeah, yeah. I think that that is the, I think that is the reasoning. And I think in the 1950s, when, you know, the population was only 10% or 11% other, and, you know... Oh, I actually went and looked in the, the 1956 census, 160 million people in 1956, of which 10% were considered Negro and 1% were considered other. So majority of people going to the movies during this time period were white. Yeah, that was definitely, that's always been the target audience. So they, they try to make it, you know, gear it towards that target audience. And, and it's, it's still boundary today. I mean, look at how amazingly successful and talked about Black Panther is because of this like you you don't see a 
a, a superhero movie with where the, the heroes and all the main characters are black. It's just it, it's not really a thing. And and the fact that it's still going on today and that's it's such a big issue. And that's why the movie did so well. And I think that will kind of change where everything's going. Yeah, I think I'd really like to ideally reach a point where it's not the black superhero movie. It's just another superhero movie. But I think we're a long way off from that. A long way off from that, yeah. And I, I agree with you. I, I hope that, that one day we can we can get to that point. But I think we just need a bunch where it is labeled like that. The, it's the equal, equal opportunities that need to happen. So there's no reason to put Scarlett Johansson in a movies. The, she's no business being in. I think that that's I think that that's where it starts. Is if the if the role is written for a minority, and even using the word minority doesn't even seem right. We'll just use a specific. If a role is yeah. If a, yeah, if a role is written for a non-white actor or actress, don't cast a white person. It's not even like it's not even that difficult of a concept. I think that's completely separate from uh, an, an original concept written about four buddies and all four of them happen to be white. I think that that's, I think that that's separate than it definitely looks worse. I'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah. But like so. for me, I mean, I guess that, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is for me, I am a white 27 year old male American when I write, I write from that perspective. It's very difficult for me to try and write from a female perspective. It's very difficult for me to write from a Hispanic or African-American or Asian perspective. So a lot of what I write does feature mostly white characters. So maybe the issue is embedded even further that we need more creatives in the writer's room and directing and producing who are diverse. Absolutely. And and to go back on that, that's why most characters I write in my scripts are all assholes. I just, I can only write what I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> write what you know, Bob. So in, interesting discussion. And again, I, I think that it's one that we should, we should continue to have. In, in this case, I, I, I don't think that it's safe to say we can forgive them for doing something, but we certainly understand from a business perspective and just judging by the climate of America during this time period, why it happened. Yeah, we can absolutely. understand. Oh, man, I didn't know we were getting so so deep in this episode, Matt. I feel bad that I don't know if we're going to get to our get to our Technicolor conclusion. Oh, no, the punctuated Technicolor conclusion. <laughs> why don't we just talk about it anyway? We're here. Okay. So what did you learn? So I feel like an ass because every time I go to the movies and I see the Technicolor, I was like, wow, this film was, this movie was shot on film. They're shooting a lot of movies on film these days. Wow. God damn. Especially during Oscar season, they all had Technicolor on the bottom. I was like, wow, every film. Then I realized that Technicolor is like a post finishing company now. Like they do a lot of like color grading and like, you know, you know, processing and stuff like that. So it doesn't mean it's shot on film. It just means that they used the company Technicolor to process their movie or or color grade their film. So I feel like a dick. Yeah, the dye transfer process did get reintroduced in the 90s, but it was mostly just to restore films. Like The Wizard of Oz was restored. Gone with the Wind was restored. I'm not doing the Munchkin voice again. Sorry. Damn it. I thought maybe I could sneak it in there, but they did. They did. Did you see that they did actually use it for a couple? They used it for Pearl Harbor, Toy Story 2, then Red Line. Shout out to Terrence Malick. You and your damn Terrence Malick. I thought it was interesting that their dye process, even though it was slower than um, all of the others, it did use more stable acid dyes, so it made them great for preserving the, um, the movies over time, where Eastman... Eastman color suffered a lot of color fading. Another color note, this film was very blue. The blues were so blue. <laughs> very blue. I didn't this wasn't as vibrant as the last one. It wasn't In as fact, vibrant, but the blues is, were oh, so the blues. blue. I really liked the um the dining room scene all in gold. That was really cool, too. And there were five or six cups in every place. You you like to talk about your cups. I like cups. <laughs> I'm a cup gotta, man now. You gotta get a t-shirt. <laughs> I like cups. <laughs> Just like a cup with a smiley face on it. 
Yeah, maybe, maybe when we start our t-shirt line. Yeah, that's uh, at least three episodes away. There's only one thing left to do, Matt. You know what that is? Yes, pick our 2000, I almost said 19 because I'm so used to it, our 2005 movie. I am very excited, although I have to say a little bit let down by our choices. The nominees for next week's podcast are Brokeback Mountain. Ooh. Good night and good luck. I have no idea what that is. I think it's a George Clooney movie, which was shot in black and white, by the way. Capote, Munich, and the winner of that year, Crash. Oh! Next week, the podcast goes to Good Night and Good Luck. Awesome. I don't know what the fuck that movie is, but I'm excited to talk about it. And... I'm really excited to end the episode by saying good night and good luck. Oh my God, Bob, it's set in 1953. (laughs) You're telling me we're still in the 50s? What, What has happened? We... We don't deserve nice things. This is a load of shit. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you next week for 2005's 1953's... Can we just watch the Ten Commandments? Fuck this. (laughs) Good night and good luck. (laughs) Good night and good luck, Matt. (laughs) I can't fucking believe this. Getting to know what to say Haven't you noticed Suddenly I'm brown